Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined by Ben Gessling from TCO Performance Center in Egan, where we just heard from Brian Flores, the new defensive coordinator of your Minnesota Vikings. Not yours, Ben's, the fans. Yeah, um, they knew it would be Ben. What, uh, what were your first impressions from Brian and Kevin? We got to hear from both of them. They talked about their shared visions, and I believe Brian's quote was, He's aggressive on offense, and I want to be aggressive on defense. Yeah, I mean, it was like the the two Spider-Man <laughs> meme <laughs> thing where they're pointing at it. You're the one from this universe, and maybe not that. I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah, the shared vision was it's certainly a theme. Um, you could be forgiven if you extrapolated that to me that there was not a shared vision before, that there was not enough aggressiveness. I, I don't think that's a big leap, given the fact that Kevin O'Connell said multiple times – Towards the end of the season, he wanted the defense to be more aggressive. That won't be a problem here if Brian Flores is playing the scheme to the degree that he typically has, where it's a lot of cover zero, a lot of cover one, a lot of blitzing, a very different approach overall than what we've seen in the past. And he didn't really shy away from that. He talked about we need to figure out what we have with the players that are on this roster. Well, (laughs) at least the players that are on this roster for now, and we'll see how many of them are here in a month, but it's, I think, going to look a lot different, and that's kind of been the, the, the only question we've had is, is Brian Flores going to have carte blanche to do what he wants, or is there going to be sort of a, well, let's stick with a lot of what we did last year. I, I didn't get the sense that there's a lot of guardrails in terms of, well, Brian, I know you've done this in the past, but this is how we did things last year. I, I don't think anybody's married to that philosophy to the degree that it's going to need to stay in any significant way. I think you're going to see a lot of changes in the way that they cover, the way that they rush. It'll still be a 3-4 base, which doesn't really surprise anybody and probably doesn't matter a whole lot. But the what they do, especially on passing downs, I think it's going to look a lot different than it has in the last year or so. Um, we, Brian Flores and, and Kevin were asked about, I guess Brian was just asked about the defensive coaching staff. And if there were any guardrails, it would seem to be that most of those assistants are still under contract under him and yep. might remain in place. Yeah. Yeah. I think there could be a change or two. I think from what I've heard, there's been discussions of maybe bringing in a guy here or there, but yeah, most of those guys are, are under contract. Alik Terry, their assistant D line coach just left for the university of Oregon. Uh, so there could be an opening there obviously, but I would expect a lot of this staff to look as it has. Now you have to figure out who's next in line. In that case, if Brian Flores gets a head coaching job in a year, and he he got asked about that and didn't get into a ton. I didn't expect that he would, but he did say that he was a candidate still for the Cardinals job when he took this one, which means he turned that down or at least took his name out of the running for it. And he said this felt like the right fit. He said it was a a gut thing that this felt like the right fit. So you may – uh, infer what you want from that while you were uh, perhaps thinking about these things next to your PlayStation this evening. But um, and he didn't say anything to that regard. But you can you can you can infer what you want. He did. Was that when he brought up the control versus growth part? Yeah. And yep. he, he said he kind of viewed this as an opportunity for growth, which would infer that the Cardinals maybe weren't the best opportunity for growth. Yeah. Even though it would have been yeah. a, a step back into that head coaching job. Yeah, and it's hard, I think, because you look at what happened in Miami with him, and he didn't want to get into that a ton today either, which is understandable because that lawsuit against the Dolphins and a number of other teams is still active. But I, you have to think for him, if you're heading into your second chance to be a head coach – you have to be fairly selective with where that is because third chances tend not to come around. Um, you know, right or wrong, they just don't tend to if the first two don't work out. Uh, and there's a lot of extenuating circumstances into the Miami thing, certainly. But if you got another chance and it didn't work, you could certainly see owners saying, "Well, you know, that that's that. We're not going to come back around a third time." Um, so I think the the next one he takes, you probably have to be fairly careful with where is it and how good do I feel about the setting. And until then, I, I stay where I am. The, now, the, the piece of that that has actual ramifications is for the Vikings to get a third-round pick in the event that Brian Flores becomes a head coach again, he does have to be here for two years. I know we've talked about this rule a little bit, and I mentioned it on the radio a few weeks ago, and I had a, an astute uh, – 
Twitter follower point out to me that now the, the wording says it's two years, that the, the, the coach has to be with the current team for two years before he leaves for that team to receive compensation. So in order for the Vikings to receive a third-round pick for Brian Flores becoming a head coach, he would have to coach here through 2024, not just this year. So if, in fact, you're hoping that the Vikings benefit from it if and when he does leave, that will take two years for that to happen. Good segue because this might be a two-year rebuild on this Minnesota Vikings Yeah, defense. very possible. <laughs> when you look at this roster, Brian Flores was asked about what he thought about what he was inheriting in terms of the personnel on the roster. Kevin O'Connell said that was a big part of our search was discussing the personnel, yep. how to get the best out of them, how to move forward. Um, Brian Flores, or B-Flow as he's known, um, basically said that we have a lot of the players here fit the bill of what I'm looking for. What he said that he was looking for was toughness, uh, intellect, uh, a lot of the stuff that you hear from, you know, smart, tough, physical football players. There you go. A lot of the stuff you hear from uh, hard nosed defensive head coaches, which Brian Flores coming from the Bill Belichick tree. Um, Wait, so that phrase has made its way around the Parcells <laughs> Belichick tree. Oh, I thought it was original when I heard it in 2014. It, it, oh, wow. it has. And as we've also heard it around uh, Winter Park all the way to TCO Performance Center. Oh, I uh, guess it wasn't Winter Park that I heard it. A time or two <laughs> before that. I, I think a guy named uh, the Big Tuna was winning some championships yeah. with that kind of a mindset. Yeah. Um, but point being, Brian Flores speaks the rhetoric around the defense is a lot different already than Ed Donatel, who you referenced in a question today. Yeah. Uh, when asking about what the difference is or, or is aggressiveness going to be a key difference in this shift. And Kevin O'Connell said basically, yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and, and I think that's no secret based on what you heard at the end of the season. Now, <laughs> the personnel, I think, has a lot to say about this. And specifically at the cornerback position, there, there was kind of a, a tangle of people trying to squeeze in a question at the end. And the thing I was going to ask that I didn't end up getting to was what do you want to see out of your corners? Because I think that is going to be, and there'll be time to ask this question, but I think there's going to be a lot of decisions to be made about that group. Do you bring Patrick Peterson back? Do you feel like your young corners are ready to go? Do you feel confident in their health? Do you want Chandon Sullivan back? You know, all of that is to be determined in the next month here. Do you want Duke Shelley back? Duke Shelley's a free agent. The only corners they have under contract after this or heading into this season, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Cameron Dantzler, Andrew Booth, Caleb Evans. That sounds right. Yeah. So there's some work to do wow. at that spot. Yeah. Chris Boyd, I think his contract is even up. Yes, if, it is. If, I believe if he's a UFA. Remembering correctly, the special teamer who, who has carved out value for this team, just not on defense. And, Chan, yeah, Shannon Sullivan, slot corner, started all those uh, games and reps there, also a free agent. Patrick Peterson tweeted out that he's basically a lock to return. Yeah, that was very interesting. And from the little bit I heard, it sounds like Patrick Peterson was in Arizona for the Super Bowl. The Vikings also had people in Arizona for the Super Bowl. I don't think that was an accident. That, that tweet came... I can't remember if it was Super Bowl Sunday or the day before the game. It was the weekend. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, when. but it's. Uh, I, I think there were some conversations behind that tweet that led to Patrick Peterson tweeting out that there was a lock and tweeting out pictures of himself <laughs> in a Vikings uniform. Uh, the the anti Stefan Diggs taking out all of the social media stuff <laughs> yeah. from the Vikings, or even I guess Adarius Smith has done this too, but. Um, yeah, going the opposite direction, saying, making it seem like I'm I'm yours if you want me. Yep. Yeah, Quasi's got to be saying thank you, thank you, because we can't afford you if if you were going to play hardball. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And Pat is a businessman; he may still play hardball uh, financially with the Vikings, but if he wants to be here, that's got to help negotiations in some way, shape, or form. Um, whether or not the I mean, he was obviously far and away the best corner on the Vikings, yeah. <laughs> far and away last season. Uh, but what exactly they'll get out of him and how he would fit a Brian Flores defense is fascinating, considering it would be much different than the zone coverage. He, so Pat would have gone, let's say he stays here, would have gone from man under Mike Zimmer, which he often played in Arizona. We'll go back. Go back. It's zone at the end in Arizona right. that he didn't like. That's right. Then he wanted to come here to play for Mike Zimmer. So continue. Yeah, yeah. The, the end of the run in Arizona shifted him away from the man coverage that led him to be a three-time All-Pro in Arizona. 
to Mike Zimmer where he could return to that, to not getting targeted much because everybody else in man was getting beaten under Mike Zimmer, to then going into zone here where he can make some plays and did and stood out, to then if he stays here, it'd be going back to man uh, and as as Patrick admitted, putting more of that mileage on a 30-plus-year-old body. Yeah, and he's still in great shape and certainly has taken good care of himself, doesn't really tend to miss games because of injury. In fact, I don't know that he really has. Other, well, the hamstring last year was the only time that, that it's happened. I think it was the only time, only time in his career that he's missed a game because of injury. But he was the first to say that this has been a good scheme for me in the Vic Fangio defense this year. And he said, I've always been a fan of the scheme. I've always been a fan of Ed Donatel based on our interaction in 2011 when the 49ers were looking at drafting Peterson and Donatel was their DB coach. So he would have to go back again to playing more man coverage probably. And can he do it? I, Yeah, I think there's a possibility of that. Is that the best idea to have him playing 900-some snaps in that type of a role? Probably not. Um, you might want to have some other options behind him, which means developing some of the corners that you have and then maybe using some resources to get more. Um, but they don't have a ton of draft picks to do that. So it is a real <laughs> – that spot is uh, is really tricky. And uh, people have talked about, you know, does he convert to safety? I, I don't know. I mean, I that's a little hard to imagine. At this point, Brian Flores did say too one of the cut traits he covets in defensive backs is versatility. Yeah. It's what famously led to a rift between him and Minka Fitzpatrick in Miami, where they traded Minka Fitzpatrick because Minka didn't like his role because he was playing a lot of slot corner, moving around a bunch. He wanted to be more of a safety um, than what they were doing with him. Brian Flores said right off the top here, not in regards to Minka, but in regards to his style, that he wants guys to be versatile. So maybe that lends to Pat moving around a little bit, hybrid roles, who knows what kind of stuff they can cook up for him. It's just fascinating because the cupboard is almost empty. It really as, is. As you said. Uh, you have to turn to Andrew Booth and say, okay, time is now. Yeah, and <laughs> say to both him and Caleb Evans, and Cameron Dantzler for that matter, we need to stay on the field. And that has been a problem for all three in one way or another over the course of their time in Minnesota. And for two of those guys, I realized it's a rookie season. But Andrew Booth had a lot of issues in college. And Caleb Evans, it's a it's a tough question because it's concussions. But Cameron Dantzler has had a fair amount of trouble staying on the field as well. I talked to uh, Caleb Evans, just to put a, a, another note on that, I talked to Caleb Evans way back six weeks ago when they were cleaning out their lockers, or four weeks ago, whenever it was. And he said that they've already got him fitted for a new helmet for next year uh, in terms of one that's supposed to be more concussion proof. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or a Q collar too. There's some talk of that. I don't remember that part, but he did mention that they're building up. It's like they have me doing these neck exercises to build up uh, stuff in his neck. Patrick Peterson's working with him on how to tackle better. And I said, does that mean just taking your head out of it? And he he laughs and goes, yep. So it's stuff as basic as that where like even though you would think getting into the NFL, right, you would – know how not to lead with your head. Um, Especially when the NFL has been promoting the heads-up football yeah. tackling stuff for the last decade. I mean, But these are young men, very young men yeah, coming they're in. Not, and Caleb is 22, is not three. completely taken hold. Yeah, so uh, there's work to do, but a Caleb Evans showed a lot in terms of just his willingness and physicality and all that, and, and maybe he can fit a kind of Brian Flores-style defense. But staying on the field is huge after he suffered what Kevin O'Connell said was three concussions alone in his rookie year, and that's just documented. That's not all the sub-concussive stuff that players talk about. Um, but th- One of those must have been in training camp because two were during the season, and he missed a little bit of time, I think, at the beginning of August. So, I mean, that in, in, in training camp, I believe he did. So that, I think, probably had to be that's, – that's an educated guess, but that seems like it was when the third one would have happened, unless it was – you know, OTAs or minicamp at some time we weren't here to see it. Yeah. So they've got some players, um, but they're, and we'll see what they do through free agency and the draft. Brian Flores did say there are going to be new players here like every year. Every team turns guys over, and that might be the understatement of the century considering where this defense is at with its aging veterans, some bloated contracts, just when you measure them up to the salary cap, uh, what they're going to have to do. Uh, Brian Flores did say, though, that his son, right, was a huge fan of this. Yes. Because he's a big Justin Jefferson fan. Yes, he has said he has two boys, I think ages 10 and 9, and then he has a daughter who is 6, who he said 
took her first steps at U.S. Bank Stadium during photo day before Super Bowl 52 when Flores was with the Patriots on their staff. So uh, some some ties there, but the, the his two boys, he said, had told him it's Minnesota or nowhere. <laughs> and why was there such a strong tie to Minnesota? Justin Jefferson said <laughs> they there were some gritties around our house when I got the job, and he said he has his own version of it, uh, but that will not be shared with the world, at least at this point. I believe Kevin O'Connell has alluded to his own gritty that will remain from public view as well. We've had to see Adam Thielen, so how bad can it be? We have. <laughs> we've seen his, and we've seen Kirk Cousins, and we've seen Mike Gesicki uh, trying to – spoof it or whatever we would call that in Miami last year um the, the one of the last things I wanted to get to off of this press conference was Kevin O'Connell talking about ways that he can do better I think w- when he was asked first and he was asked a few times about the shift to a more aggressive defense he tried to turn the attention on himself and said well there's many ways I can do better for our team what did you make of that considering the fact that when he was going into this year he he seemed to be very cognizant of that. Yeah. He talked a lot yeah. about how I want to take ownership of this entire yep. thing, not just be the offensive head coach. Well, he seems to think that there are ways he can learn from his first year to do that even better next year. Yeah, I mean, I I have, I have, would be conjecturing a little bit, but my hunch is that, I mean, it certainly seemed like he was caught between having a certain way that he wanted to play defense and feeling like he would be stepping on toes if he – dictated too much of that to Ed Donatel. I mean, it certainly seemed like before the Colts game, after the Lions game that they lost, the conversations about we need to be more aggressive in coverage, take the air out of the coverage that Ed Donatel talked about, which I I think is very likely a phrase he got from Kevin O'Connell. Um, there was a shift in the way that they were covering. You saw more man stuff. That's when they started using Peterson as the boundary corner to take away the easy throws. So some of those things happened, but I wonder if he means finding a way to have his vision for the way he wants defense played carried out in a more thorough fashion. Because he, he certainly doesn't want to be the guy that's domineering and come in and say, listen, you know, this is the way we're going to do it because I said so. I, that's not really his style, but you do run into this thing of you're responsible for all of it. I mean, we saw this with Mike Zimmer how many times with the offensive side of the ball where it was, he would almost act like a bystander to what was happening. It's like, no man, this is your team. If you want things done a certain way, you have to get people to buy into that. And it's not always just yelling at people either. It's getting them to use your ideas in a way that's productive for everybody. You mean you can't just berate an offensive line into being tougher? No, uh, no, that doesn't seem to have worked, nor can you, um, mock an offensive coordinator's game plan in a press conference and expect that it's going to sort of engender a bunch of uh, inspired ready to follow you anywhere type stuff or you know you can yeah we could go on with this the other one I was going to say was defense but um, those are corners in Green Bay on Christmas Eve not offensive (laughs) play callers or (laughs) offensive linemen um yeah, we could do this all day, but yeah, we they, really could. We, oh man, <laughs> we're not even t- sharing all of them. Um, let's yeah, let's not get ourselves in too much trouble. Uh, that we'll start a Patreon. You can get like the exclusive version that uh, the after ap- access Vikings after dark, or just go to a Colorado Buffs press conference after a game. You might get to talk to the defensive coordinator. I don't know if he'll end up being the defensive yeah, coordinator. Maybe I don't not. Think, I don't know that he will. <laughs> I, he apparently was. And they're running for the Broncos job, and I think the question about whether he wants to be a defensive coordinator again is is a pertinent one as his name surfaces in Arizona as well. Anyway, current head coach of the Vikings is Kevin O'Connell. Um, but I do think there's a little bit of this thing of I'm an expert on one side of the ball. I am responsible for all of the phases of the team, and I have to figure out how to kind of impart my vision for how all of that's going to work without um, – stepping on the toes of the people that I've hired to do the job. And in, in this case, you have a guy that has more head coaching experience than you do. Um, Kevin O'Connell is the third, and this is a technicality for now because this will change in a year or two, but Kevin O'Connell has the third most years as a head coach in the NFL on this staff behind Mike Pettin and Brian Flores. So 
it, it's a good thing in the sense that he's bringing in people who are good at what they do and that they're going to be confident in what they do. But there, you do have a little bit of the give and take that you have to work with there, I think. And and I wonder if some of that with Ed Donatel, if he felt like there's a different way to go about it. Yeah, what, what you're saying is very relevant for a 37-year-old head coach, very young, obviously. So that kind of experience is critical. Brian Flores is four years his senior uh, and has all those years head coaching above him. I think Mike Zimmer, though, the same thing could have been said of him at one point with Norv and Tony Sperano. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if Sperano, by the time Sperano got here, it was probably pretty even. Well, because that was only year three for Zim, so I don't, I can't remember where Sperano. It probably pretty close. Um, Dorf Turner certainly would have had more. Um, but having experience on your staff is not not a new thing, but one for a young young head coach is is critical. And Brian's not super old. He's not going to be one of those guys who's or so. crusty and the game has passed him by. You know, you got that vibe from Donatel a little bit, where it's like you don't know how to solve some of the stuff yeah. that's getting thrown yeah. at you. Um, Brian is coming from is a pit stop in Pittsburgh uh, where he thanked the Rooney family and Mike Tomlin for hiring him amid suing the NFL. He did say that lawsuit today is ongoing, but wouldn't get in much to that, obviously, as he joins another NFL team. Um, that was another instance where he felt the need to say, I am where my feet are at. Like, I know this is ongoing, not going to talk about it, but it is something that as long as he's a member of the Vikings, it's going to be relevant. And it is relevant no matter what. Um, but Ben, he also felt the need to say that the diversity here when you step in the building is strong. Yeah, he did. And that's, I think, a fairly important point for him and certainly is an important point for the Vikings, certainly an important point for the league as a whole. Um, not necessarily the case in Miami and uh, uh, maybe not the case in a lot of other places as well. But yeah, you start with a with one of the few general managers of color, and that, that number's gotten better, but Quasi Adolfo Mensa, one of the few black GMs in the league. Uh, two black coordinators uh, have a number of uh, candidates or people of color in the scouting department, uh, Demetrius Washington, Chisholm Apara. Um, there, there's certainly a lot more representation of different backgrounds, different cultures, different races in this organization than there has been in the past, and... I think, you know, if you're going to go work somewhere after the, the lawsuit that you have, I mean, you like to think there's not going to be blowback to that. But, I mean, I, I think anybody that is watching this league and has paid attention to the last six years, I think we're at since Colin Kaepernick, um, it would be naive to think that there's not real-world repercussions for these things. So... Working for somebody like Mike Tomlin and then working at a place like this where you have some people in your corner and some people that I think share your experience is probably important, uh, especially as you're trying to kind of define yourself again as a football coach. Again, this is a side effect that he probably didn't ask for, certainly didn't ask for any of this, but you do have to kind of shift the focus back onto your merits as a football coach right or wrong that's just kind of real life and I think being in a place like this where I think he feels comfortable being able to do that is, is probably pretty important yeah my, my understanding is Mike Pettin still intends to hold a second diversity yeah. summit yep. this coming spring where he brought in uh, the team brought in and hosted was a 10 um, young coaches from all walks of football from all levels of college to the NFL um, to, to kind of help bring them up on the hiring process, interview process, all that stuff. It's important to note, too, with Kevin and Mike Pettin being two senior members of this team that they have a number of um, black coaches on the offensive staff, yes. which is important. And I was just double-checking that Gerard Johnson just got the promotion from assistant quarterbacks coach to Colts quarterbacks coach. Um, and so they'll have to fill a spot there on Kevin's staff. Yeah. But the run game coordinator, Curtis Watkins, Keenan McCardell, um, that is very important because as we see these offensive coaches getting hired yes. around the league yes. for head jobs, yep. very few times it's Brian Flores seems like a worthy, you know, former head coach. If he does well here, certainly a worthy candidate to be looked at, but owners seem to want to go more toward the offensive side. Yeah, the QB coach thing has, and this has been the point with Troy Vincent's program that he's kind of talked about at the league level of, we want each team to hire a diverse coach on the offensive side of the ball because we recognize the pathway that is getting these head coaches jobs. So for Gerard Johnson to get a quarterback's coach job somewhere else could be really important because then the next step to that could be offensive coordinator and the next step from that is head coach potentially. So 
that those types of things are a big deal for both candidates of color and for organizations that want to provide opportunities for candidates from a number of different backgrounds. It, it sends the message that you're going to have responsibility, you're going to have say-so in what we do, and you have a chance to move on from there. So it's it's a good thing, I think, for everybody. And the other thing in all of this to mention is the Vikings social justice efforts have been awfully strong for a long time. A lot of players have led that. Andre Patterson, former defensive line coach and co-defensive coordinator, was a, a major voice in that when it started a few years ago. The question was, I think, how much of that is going to continue as a result of the shift? It has continued. Kwesi Adolfo-Mensa and Kevin O'Connell, from what I understand, are both very involved in those efforts. And that even is probably a little bit different because I don't think you had people of that senior of a level in the organization directly involved with it before. So those things, and I, I don't know if Brian Flores will be involved in that or not. It's day one that we've seen it. But those things are still very much happening. And they are happening with, I think, more involvement from senior level people than had happened before. And uh, all that is to say there is still very much a sensitivity to being involved in those places and providing opportunities and, and seats at the table for uh, people from diverse backgrounds. Yeah, and the players in, in that kind of committee that the Vikings have had forever keep changing because, I mean, veteran leaders and players – yeah could be coming in and out of this door, whether it's any bar was a big part of that. Eric Hendricks now too, still here, but we'll have to see as changes continue on these Minnesota Vikings for the 2023 season. Um, is there anything more regarding Flores that we should add? Not really. I don't think, I mean, it's going to be a busy month here. I, you know, O'Connell, I think one of the things I guess we'll mention very quickly is he talked about going through a pretty deep process here with a lot of these candidates. And I, I know one of the things that he did was, have candidates come in and say this was some of our film from last year I want you to critique it tell me what you did what you would do differently tell me what you think of what we did so I think the the interview process was one where candidates were allowed to be fairly honest with what they saw from the Vikings defense and some of it was I think just getting ideas so even the guys that he didn't hire um Ryan Nielsen, Sean Desai, Ajiro Avero, who was a very strong candidate for them, a guy that may well have gotten the job if things had gone differently. He and Brian Flores were certainly the top two candidates on the list. But a lot of these people they talked to, as well as Mike Pettin, were given opportunities to say, this is what I like, this is what I didn't like. And I think the process of growing from that is, is going to be important because defensive coordinator number two in year two, if that doesn't work, then things start to the tone of this all starts to change pretty quickly, and I think Kevin O'Connell knows that. But it uh, it does add a little more urgency to getting this one right. We're joined now by the Star Tribune's Mark Craig, our Hall of Fame voter for this market. Uh, we're having him on to talk about a few things, including you got to talk to Kevin O'Connell and Brad Childress too about Andy Reid. If you guys didn't see that, please go to StarTribune.com. Read Mark's article about Andy Reid, the two-time Super Bowl champion head coach, who you said you'd only I'd only come on this podcast, Mark, if I razz you, and I have to razz you. How does a guy like that only get however many head co or votes for NFL Coach of the Year and not even get into the top five of voting? Come on. Wait Mark. a minute. Wait, wait. I, I told you after the <laughs> Super Bowl and before the Combine is the rip the Hall of Fame selection committee. So now we've expanded that to ripping the uh, the NFL honors voters as well. Uh, yeah, that's my my uh, when people were talking that Kyle O'Connell might have got snubbed by this and you know this guy gets snubbed and I'm like Andy Reid's gotten snubbed you know, for ten years and I brought that up to O'Connell. I saw. I go, Kevin, you were in my top three. I said, I should have voted for Andy Reid, but I gave him my top three, which was Shanahan, Peterson, and O'Connell, and Brian Dable wins it. Uh, and he was, you know, it's one of these it's, uh, where I said, it's, and he actually told, you know, he said to me, he goes, I think it's, they should have two of them now, one coach of the year and rookie coach of the year, because it, it, it is a, it's a, it's a become an award where you win it. Like, say, Matt Nagy. Matt Nagy leaves Andy Reid. He goes and he wins Coach of the Year. He gets fired three years later. He goes back to Andy Reid. He wins the Super Bowl. So, yeah, Andy uh, uh, had not, not Coach of the Year, but as O'Connell said, I bet you he would get a lot of votes for Coach of the last 10 years, 
with what he has done in Kansas City. It is amazing when you look at the numbers of what where they were 10, 20 years before him and then the 10 years with him. And he's uh, he's not, you know, some I read reading somewhere today that he's on the Mount Rushmore, the top four of, of coaches. And I go back a little too far to put him on, you know, the top four. But I think he makes that second mountain of, uh, you know, the, of top, maybe top eight. How many Super Bowls has he coached in now? Four? Yeah. But uh, there were this league existed for a long time without Super Bowls. So for oh, me, oh, you're going back that far. Well, yeah, well, when the Packers were 13 times. Yeah, well, my, my here, here's my top 13. four. Here's my top four. <laughs> it's George Hallis. It's, I mean, that's that that right there. You know, people would probably say, ah, oh, you know, that's they didn't have a salary cap back then. You know, they didn't have any salaries basically. Uh, Vince Lombardi, Bill Belichick, and. Uh, Paul Brown would be my my four. Bill Walsh doesn't make the list, huh? Yeah, it's almost as impressive to think of who doesn't make the Don list. Don Shula, but I mean, Don Shula doesn't make it. Chuck Noll doesn't yeah. make it. But I'm just you know you know what these guys did. If you go back and you research and you look at all the innovations that Paul Brown had, I'm not, this is just not a Cleveland guy doing this. The how he I mean what he did to the coaching profession and is now just after, you know, people are like, well, that's – it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always a classroom setting. It wasn't always, uh, you know, the headsets in, in, in the helmets. It wasn't always a face mask. I mean, this is a guy that was innovating, you know, uh, was at the you know, grassroots, you know, of innovation. So Andy Reid does become one of 14 coaches with at least two titles now, I believe, in the, in the Super Bowl era, I should say, just yeah. Super Bowl titles. Um, so Mark watching that Super Bowl after you wrote that story on him, um, I guess when it comes to what we all love to do in terms of parsing the credit for where they're at in this chief's dynasty, people are going to say, it seems like what I'm trying to say is it seems like he doesn't get that credit because he's got Patrick Mahomes. But when you talk about it, it's obviously had Alex Smith before that Donovan McNabb in Philly, who wasn't always considered top five. Um, do you think the fact that Andy Reid doesn't get that shine is because he's got Perhaps the greatest quarterback in the game right now. Well, but let's yeah. I mean, you also have to look at how he, how that quarterback. This wasn't a number one draft pick. This was a guy that was taken when Alex Smith. This was a this was a pick that people were saying, you know, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? Uh, and you know, Andy Reid. They don't make that. They don't make that pick unless Andy Reid. You know, Brett Veach comes in. He was a right hand man of Andy's in Philadelphia. Comes in, becomes general manager. He's the first guy to start pounding the table on him. But you know, he, he doesn't come onto that team unless Andy Reid. Uh, I was talking to Childers about this, you know, of how they had to vet, you know, Patrick Mahomes and and everything. As Childers was saying, that everything about Patrick Mahomes coming into the draft were things that now is other people are saying. You know, obviously, the best quarterback in the league right now. It's the foot. The footwork wasn't right. You know, he doesn't. He's never under center. All these things that become strengths were weaknesses or or like question marks at that point. So that's number one. And number two is. I mean, look, look, the Rams last year, they, they sold their soul basically to win that, that championship. Uh, this team not only wins a championship with the best quarterback in the league, they have the best draft class in the league. I mean, they had, they had a cornerback in the seventh. You know, the Vikings took one in the second round, took one in the fourth or fifth round or whatever it was. You know, those guys are both hurt and couldn't really contribute. And the one guy in the second round couldn't contribute even before he was hurt. He was just doing it on special teams. Here's a seventh round, Watson – is a corner that's playing in the seventh round, a Pacheco, the running back. And that first first or second play of the second half, when they came out and Pacheco went around the end, there was a sense of urgency that, that we didn't see in the first half. They didn't have the ball much in the first half. But this team not only won it this year, but you know they, they had an excellent draft class this year, an excellent draft class last year with the center and, and their right guard. Um, you know, they got to get their two offensive tackles signed again. But, you know, this is a – Andy Reid, it's not just a Patrick Mahomes show. And you could also say, go back two years, and Patrick Mahomes was playing that – he was playing without an offensive line, and he got beat 31-9. to And now you had an offensive line, you had a full team, had an excellent coach, and, uh, you know, they win it. So, I mean, even the thing with how Mahomes got there, too, it's like you – I mean, they had Alex Smith at the time, you know, a guy that had been productive. They had, they had won games with him. And Andy Reid has this long history in the kind of fairly traditional West Coast offense of, you know, kind of coming from the the Mike Holmgren tree in Green Bay and then, you know, obviously taking it to Philadelphia, the the strands we've seen with Brad Childress and, and Doug Peterson and, and Matt Nagy and a lot of those people since then. He had not played an offense like what Patrick Mahomes did. And then the question is, well, how's he going to fit? And he says, well, it's not a problem. 
we're just going to run his offense. And a lot of what we're going to do is going to be based on the stuff he did and the things that he's comfortable with. And they don't seem to be terribly concerned with the labels when they're using it to win two championships and get to three Super Bowls in four years. Right. And I was talking to, you know, the one thing that Childers brought up was because he still talks to Nagy, still talks to Andy Reid, obviously. But he said uh, he was talking to Nagy and Nagy was like, coach, you know, I've been gone for three years, three, four years. I come back. The off- Other than the cover page on the playbook, he goes, everything else is different. You wouldn't recognize it. And uh, he, he talks about, and, and Childress is, is great about talking about how Andy Reid will take, uh, you know, you know, plays from Division Three. I mean, if a guy sees something anywhere, it doesn't matter if he sees it at a high school game or whatever, they bring it to Andy Reid. Andy Reid puts it on a – puts them at the whiteboard, and they, they go through it, and he goes, how, does, how will this help the Chiefs? And they do it, and they explain it to him. And if Andy Wright likes it, he goes on a three-by-five card, goes in the drawer. And at some point, Andy Reid's going to, you know, as Brad calls him the mad scientist, is going to incorporate that. Uh, and th- th- these are all things that we're saying. Like, you know, Kevin O'Connell obviously did a tremendous job, like resurrecting, you know, Kirk in the offense and, and this young thinking. And But Andy Reid's doing this at 64 years old. And and for him to stay modern and to, to you know, adjust and – and uh, evolve over the years is, 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 I mean, like people say, are you going to retire? He, there's no way he's having too much fun. I mean, he's, uh, and I like the fact that he won because if he had lost, I, what people would be saying about him now wouldn't be fair. So to see him do this and evolve and who knows where he's going to go from here. So he, uh, it's, it's, it's really fun to watch like an older guy be able to do what something only the younger guys can do. And like Kevin O'Connell, was looking at, you know, so this is, you know, whenever you hear players talk about work playing for Andy Reid or people, the coaches working for Andy Reid, goes, that's what I want. And I think you see, you know, you see it in guys like Kevin O'Connell and some of these younger guys. Uh, they get the, the modern game and the modern player, um, and it's a tribute to Andy Reid that he can do that, having been in the league longer than these guys have been alive. Pivoting to the modern 2023 Pro Football Hall of Fame class, Mark, you were part of the discussions and deliberations on that. The group that did not vote in Jared Allen this oh, year. Yeah, <laughs> Bring it. Yeah, I'm going to keep ripping you. I'm, I'm trying to get the pitchforks as close to your heels as we possibly can here. Um, but, I, look, I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. It's not my decision. But the point is that he's a three-time finalist, somebody who seems just good enough to be in that discussion. But how can you not vote in Zach Thomas, Joe Thomas, Rondé Barr, all these guys that got in? So... Uh, was that justified in your mind that Jared Allen is still waiting? Well, I mean, this was the best conversation. There's been, he's been a finalist three years. You know, guys like John Lynch, you know, was a, I think was a finalist eight years. Uh, if you go back before I was on the committee, I think Lynn Swan was a finalist for like 14 years, 15 years, something like that. Uh, one thing I don't like about how they set up the NFL, the Hall of Fame, is the fact that it, these guys are brought in every year and they're announced. And, and uh, you know, now we you know, we voted on uh, – on uh, January 17th, so there's three weeks there. Amazingly, 49 people didn't spill the beans, uh, um, so you kind of have to wait. Till you, and with the NFL, well, they'll keep those 10 guys that didn't get in, the 10 modern guys that didn't get in, hanging. And it's like, you know, they, they've got to do the cut down out in the public and everything. So a guy like, you know, it almost becomes a negative to be a finalist at 15, but if you don't get in, because after five, six years or whatever, uh, as we saw, Ter- Terrell, Terrell Owens decided after three years, uh, heck with this, and did his own, um, you know, in ceremony. But uh, to me, this was a good conversation with Jared because he did make it from 15 to 10. The mis- misconception, I think, of the Hall of Fame is that all 15 are voted yes or no on. No, it, you, the only people that get voted yes or no are the final five. You First, we got to get from 15 to 10, which is generally, I won't say easy, but easier than 10 to five and this was the first time that Jared went from 15 to 10 and Dwight Freeney there was a log jam of three edge rushers with Dwight Freeney uh, DeMarcus Ware and Jared and Freeney who's was on the uh, you know the the sacks are all similar Uh, Freeney was on an all-decade team first team and won a Super Bowl he didn't make it to 10 so that was encouraging for Jared Jared and Ware made it from 15 to 10 but then when they went 10 to 5 Jared got, got eliminated. But of the five that were didn't get go on to the final five, Jared, you know, the four, four all-pro, twice as many as anybody that's uh, the other five, the other four. 
that were left. And one of them, Albert Lewis, was his final year as a modern era candidate. He goes into the senior uh, candidate pool. So uh, it's an encouraging. Uh, you know, Jared is obviously, you know, he's, he's a little down about it. Although he's almost as focused on his new career curling as uh, uh, he's, a, he's a fun-loving guy. So he's handling it as best you can in this situation. Um, it's really encouraging for next year for him, but it never gets any really gets any easier because next year uh, Julius Peppers comes in. You get rid of Demarcus Ware, Julius Peppers comes in and creates that that log jam again. So my hope is that you know he gets in. If it's with Julius Peppers, fine. But uh, came out of that discussion feeling like you know this is the, was the year where I got the idea that the committee is ready to put him in. You know very soon. Yeah, Ben, what do you think about uh, Jared Allen's candidacy and, and that, you know, he wasn't too far. We're, we saw him, obviously, yeah. right? It's yeah, right those, towards the end. But yeah, <laughs> Not one of those guys that, you know, we have to kind of rack our brain to remember how good he was. Uh, I heard Joe Thomas in an interview speaking Jared Allen's praises, saying few guys could bend the way he did against against yeah. uh, in the pass rush. Yeah. So and just what do you think of his candidacy? Well, I mean, it's always this, I think, this question of, like, does a guy rise to a level of, of dominance that's, you know, exemplary in a way that deserves to be recognized forever and I think with him yeah I mean you certainly saw stretches of it I can remember some of those games I guess especially that first Monday night game that Favre played the Packers I mean everybody talked about Favre beating them at the Metrodome that game in October of 09 I think Jared Allen had I don't know five sacks or something four, that yeah, game four and a half sacks yeah and then including a safety where Rodgers basically I remember being like prone trying to throw the ball away in the end zone he's like you know in the Superman dive position, try to get rid of the ball. Um, you know, Jared Allen basically took that game over, and there were stretches where, yeah, you'd see him do that all the time. It's, it's. I suppose it's a question with the pass rushers of how do you quantify it in an era. I mean, sacks are are one way to to look at it, but how do you quantify the rest of the the way they play the the position? And that was a question with Jared at times. I mean. Uh, how sound is he against the run? And when you have quarterbacks dropping back more, uh, pressures and sacks may go up as a result of that too. But um, yeah, I, I certainly think. I mean, for all pros, it's it's uh, that gets to be quite a few in terms of. I mean, you see guys get in with two, three sometimes, and uh, the fact that he's right there. Yeah, I think it's probably only a matter of time. Well, he, his his uh, his numbers are identical, basically, to to Demarcus Ware, and Ware uh, they're, they were separated by two and a half sacks, I believe. Um, there was a and they played you know about the same years, um, and there was a ten year stretch from '04 to '13 where Jared led the NFL in sacks, led the NFL in tackles for loss, led the NFL in in. Uh, uh, third down sacks. I mean, he, his his decade of he's not on a decade all decade team because his decade of dominance, uh, his four All Pros in six years in that stretch, better than anyone, including Demarcus Ware. Split uh, over two decades. So it's Close. yeah, it's split. You know, it wasn't his. He wasn't neatly. He didn't come in at a zero zero and leave on a you know zero three or whatever. And so you don't. That's where I mean, all decade does have a lot of a lot of weight. Uh, it's important, but. There's also looking at a guy, what a guy does for a 10-year stretch. Uh, and he also played, I mean, we go through the litany of his injuries, uh, of what he played with and what he could have maybe could have had uh, had he not gone like wakeboarding in Arizona and come come back to the Vikings, not told him that he th- that he tore his uh, AC joint in his, out, in his shoulder, and then he plays with it. And, uh, I mean, this guy was, uh, you know, we were – I was sharing a story with him about having back surgery, and he he had cortisone shots uh, and played with what I just my back surgery that I just had, and he's like I I still can't feel my toes. So this guy gave it all to to the NFL, and and people you know tend to forget that when he came here, he was a guy that was one strike away from he he led the NFL in sacks. The Chiefs got were too so afraid of this guy that he would screw up again and be banned for life or whatever the NFL would do with him that they traded him and, and Spielman made a great trade and, uh, and, but it came in like, Hey, you know, if this guy ends up screwing up again, it's going to be a bust. Well, he never missed a game, no matter what his injuries, no matter what. And you know, the, the mo the, the best motor in NFL history may always belong to John Randall, but Jared Allen was, was pretty, pretty darn close in that his, his motor was always going. And the, you know, uh, a lot of people will say the perception that he didn't play the run. 
But I was talking, you know, Leslie Frazier was part of my, uh, of my presentation and Leslie explained Jared's role in, you know, th- that defense ranked number one against the run. You know, there was multiple times, two or three times and second and before Jared, I'm not saying because of Jared, it's a Williams wall, obviously, but you cannot, you cannot have a number one run defense without setting the edges. And, and Jared, I mean, obviously, you know, it, He's he's a he's a higher gun you know became a higher gun of as a pass rusher up until his final year at, at the Carolina. I was like, you need that guy. You need that guy that can can rush the passer. But he was not a stiff against the run by any stretch. We saw the fi- I my only year covering Jared was yeah. his last year yeah. here, and so that is the the year I think that perpetuates. And Ben and I shared that one year, although you covered him in twenty twelve. I had two with him. Yeah, there was twelve um, and thirteen. That to personally, that's what left that in my brain when I was thinking of Jared is like, Oh, he's a guy who just chased sacks. Well, it's cause well, that was his last year when he was 30, whatever. And he had the sack list in his locker where like his place in history mean it meant and still means so much to him, which is why I'm sure this hall of fame stuff means so much to him. Um, but we saw that last year when clearly that was it for him in terms of like, I'm just going to play wide nine and get after the quarterback, which was fine for then. But to your point, he had 10 years of a career before that that established himself as a very well-rounded player. Well, and like in the, his <clears throat> final game in 2011, when he was going for the NFL sack record, got the Viking sack record. He had three sacks against the tackle that ended up here. Um, it was against the Lions, wasn't it? No, no, it was against the Bears. The, Bears. the left tackle against the Bears. He, he played here a couple of years. Jamarcus Webb. Oh my gosh. Jamarcus Webb. Yeah. yeah, the guy that Jay Cutler just hated. <laughs> yeah. So, so, the, so That's Jared, a long Jared list, is on yeah. a what was what was the 2011 team? What was it? A three win. Three and team? thirteen. Yeah. So it's his favorite year. He so said. it's his final game. <laughs> it's a three win team, and Jared Allen is playing against Jamarcus Webb, and he had three sacks, and and. If they would have had a couple more quarters, Jared would have had six sacks. I mean, he, he was just he was just beating this guy like a drum in 2011. Now, to me, that's not you know that that's not a drawback. That that's a guy that's you know he, if they're going to keep putting Jamarcus Webb one on one with the guy who could have you know if one if he'd had one more sack, he would have broken the record. Um, and he, he Lord knows he came close many times. Uh, and the record me, was also not set in the most. Uh honorable of fashion either yeah, so, yeah. it was set up like michael strahan's bit with rihanna at the halftime yes. show just completely set up sorry mark are you saying <laughs> that, that uh, brett would is involved in some shady, shady business uh, on, stunning I know. on the field uh, i just watched the hbo thing on, on brett uh, it's not not pretty um but yeah it uh, so there yeah i don't think there's that perception i don't get that perception uh, among the voters uh, that you know jared was just a sack guy because because you know he played I just, on some I just, great defenses. He did. Yeah, yeah, some, some great defenses. Yeah. yeah. You know, had you know, the strange thing is uh, his last game is the game that DeMarcus Ware won his Super Bowl. And when it comes to defend, defenders, uh, typically, for whatever reason, defenders more be more so than coaches or offensive players anymore, is if you have a great career but you don't have a uh, – and you have all pros but you don't have a Super Bowl ring – uh, or all decade, you, you tend to fall a little behind some of the other guys. So he and Demarcus Ware have virtually the same career. Demarcus Ware has a second team All Pro, our second team All Decade, and wins a Super Bowl over Jared's Panthers, who were heavily favored in that game in Super yeah, Super Bowl Fifty. So Jared, you know, by you know, and Jared's playing on a broken foot. Jared had broken his foot in the in the divisional game. Uh, wasn't going to play in the or the conference championship. Uh, maybe he broke it in the conference championship. Anyways, when, uh, he was ruled out. Or Rivera had ruled him out, and Jared came onto the field, was practicing, and they had a big argument, and they ended up letting him play in the Super Bowl. And uh, so, yeah, he's playing basically on a broken foot, and uh, didn't have a big game or anything like that. But if they win the Super Bowl, and maybe it's a different story, and then he's got his ring, which is, you know, the fine, fine. You talk about a fine line there. Of like whether a guy goes in over another guy, that that's probably as fine as it gets. Well, the all decade thing is interesting too. I remember talking to my uh, emailing, I think, with my long lost cousin Rick Goslin a few years ago about Harrison Smith, and he the thing he pointed out is he doesn't have an all decade team and he hasn't won a Super Bowl. So like you're kind of talking about with the defensive players, I mean, now he the difference with him, I suppose, is in the 2010s he was in the league for the you know eight years of that decade. Probably ended up. Let's see who would have been behind Earl Thomas. I'm trying to remember the other safety. We looked this team. up. Tyron Matthew Eric was Weddle, on it. Right? 
Tyron Matthew was on it yeah. um, as like a DB maybe yeah. is the third category on there because they have that on the all yeah. team or all, yeah. all decade. They did, yeah. Oh, maybe they don't anymore. And then um, the safeties, I think you're right. Thomas Wed- and Weddle. Wed- Barry might have been on it. Eric, yeah, you're right. Yep, it, yes, that is right. It was Eric Barry, not Eric Weddle. Maybe maybe it was those four. I don't know. But anyway, Harrison Smith was not on it, and that may in the end because he's got I think the one All Pro and he's got six Pro Bowls. But yeah, it may end up in those one of those things where we'll have to see how it all shakes out if he wins a ring or something. Yeah. But it may he, end up in the you know kind of on the the short side of that conversation. Yeah, when, when he won his first All Pro, because I I vote for All Pro, so I, I voted for him and for um, oh gosh the cornerback uh, Xavier Rhodes. Xavier Rhodes, jeez. It's Se- easy to forget. I mean, senior moments. Senior moments. Uh, I always a, forget. Uh, but Xavier had a two or three year run, and that was so about those, it. those two, you know, all pro. So I, I, I interview them together. They come out, and um, Xavier had finished second because they've done some adjustments to the all pro team, the honors team. We, you know, we've, for the honors, we now vote for top three, top six for the MVP. Uh, but all pro, if we, we've really, they've really fine tuned it to where you don't have like the. The embarrassing things of like you know JJ Watt would be first team edge and first team interior. Uh, at that point, I think it was Xavier was the uh, first team um, you know corner, and then they had like a um, like a DB. Like I think it might have been a DB or whatever. I think he was second on that. So. And Xavier's looking at it, and he's like, he goes, I was almost two, two-time All-Pro. <laughs> I said, I don't think it works that way. But he was like, he, 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 was like, he didn't get the voting. He was like, I, I, I could have been two-time All-Pro. Uh, I said, well, that, you know, if you want to interpret it that way. But I remember telling Harrison Some afterwards. Way to do it. I said, you know, Harrison, I said, you know, you got you to win another one of these. If you get two more of these, I said, you know, you're, you're, you're going to Canton. So with numbers and everything, I don't, you know, I don't know. That's just my, that was just my interpretation of, you know, you start throwing two, three, you know, or four, like Jared, uh, the other guy that doesn't get mentioned that I've got to do a better job of getting people to, to uh, at least put in the room uh, is, is Kevin Williams. Kevin Williams has five and Kevin Williams, especially at the beginning of his career was the, he might've been as good as Warren Sapp, uh, and so, you know, Warren was in a great defense, but he was that yeah, that three technique guy that I remember. There's some of those games I remember in his first or second year being down on the on the field, but you know, and kind of in the corner as they're finishing the game, you know, and Kevin's going through, and there's like three guys hanging on him, and he's still, you know, swatting the ball down. I mean, he was a, he was a force at least uh, certainly to be in the discussion of, of whether you know he could be a Hall of Famer. We will speak to you guys next time from Indianapolis, probably after Kevin O'Connell speaks uh, from the Indiana Convention Center. Two uh, weeks from today. Two weeks from today. Oh, my gosh. Where did our offseason go? (laughs) Until then, uh, please check out and follow all of our work at StarTribune.com.